This audio recording is a Restoration Roads regular Sunday service, September 17th, 2017. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Before I pray, I wanted to uh, tell you of a couple things. Number one, um, if you got the uh, sermon card last week, there were a few errors with it, so there's a new one you should probably grab. Just some dates were off and some texts. On one side is the sermon series that we're going through and others all the way through December. And on the other side is some reading plan for you to kind of study along with it per week, and so I'd encourage you to do that. Secondly, uh, this evening, just kind of, um, not spontaneously, but last couple of days, um, we... Uh, I said, let's, let's get the church together to pray. Uh, and particularly because um, personally, but I think corporately, the church is um, just right now, for whatever reason, in a, in a storm in different ways, in different places. And I'm seeing things you know, pop up and then uh, just things that uh, uh, would normally not cause a reaction, people were overreacting to. And so to get enough things in a line, you're like, okay, I can't fix this, we can't fix this, but the Lord can fix this. And so um, I'm just inviting the church to come together, and if it's just me and my wife and a couple others, fantastic. If it's many, great. At 6 o'clock, we're just going to get together pray, sing a song or two together, uh, and just cry out to the Lord. Um, because I, I posted something on Facebook that reminded us, sometimes when the fight gets difficult, we think that the best um, kind of decision in that moment is to fight harder when actually it's to surrender and cry out to the one who is the Lord to fight for you. And so um, that's what we're going to do. We're going to basically say, all right, I'm going to tap out and I'm going to cry out. And that's what we're going to do. So I invite you at six o'clock to come um, and uh, be with us and we will pray to the Lord. So I'm going to pray right now about the text we're going to go into and see what the Lord has for us this morning. If you'd bow with me. Father God, You are so good. I thank You for Your infinite patience with us. And I thank You for Your overwhelming grace. Lord, I ask this morning as we delve into something that is really important in Your church that You will help us to learn and to grow and to appreciate not just what the church is, but who You are and what You have done and why You have done it. And for us to really just praise You Uh, especially for those things that maybe push against what we know, what we've experienced, even what we prefer. Lord, let Your Word just smack us in the face. Let Your Word confront uh, our flesh and teach us what Your truth is, even if that conflicts with what we think the truth is. Thank You, Lord, that we have a Savior. Thank You, Lord, that you know every dark part of us, even if we haven't confessed it or even know it yet, and yet you love us. So we pray that you will, through your word, by your spirit, do the work that only you can do inside of us where the problem really is. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So we're in Titus, and we're talking about good church, which is a very vague title about The marks of a healthy church, which I think is really important because there's a lot of conversation, a lot of confusion about what makes a good church. What is a good church? What does the Bible say is supposed to be in a healthy church? And we are uh, in Titus and the second 
uh, uh, sermon of seven, not to say there's only seven things that mark a healthy church. Um, Mark Dever says there's nine. I'm not sure if there's just nine, but we're going to hit seven. What I do know is that the Bible says Jesus is the one who plants churches and builds churches and prunes churches and grows churches and even kills churches. That's Jesus' job. And in our four years of existence, uh, we have had a lot of people come and a lot of people stay and a lot of people leave. And I never quite get used to that. I could probably tell you every name and every face that has been through here at one time or another if they stay here more than once. I typically know, not because we take attendance, whether you're here or not on a given Sunday, because faces just go through my mind a lot over the many years. And some have come and gone with um, their own agendas, usually legalistic. Some come with often big expectations, usually quite unrealistic. And almost everyone comes with some kind of bad church experience, usually horrific, if told from their perspective. But without question, everyone has their own story, their own church story, their own church journey, however you want to describe it. And sometimes it's about an awesome church. Sometimes it's about an amazing experience with some great elders. Or I remember having one conversation when asking someone who had moved, um, stopped going to church in like Issaquah or something, and they lived around here. And I asked, so what do you miss about you know, your, your previous church because it was a great experience. Oh, we missed the preaching. I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, I didn't even respond to that. But there are awesome church experiences that people have. Great stories where they either came to faith or, or grew in their faith or just went through a difficult thing that was still good. So I don't want you to think it's only bad stories that people are coming in with. But there are those bad stories about that big bad church and that evil elder who wronged them or misunderstood them or otherwise hurt them. And I've had lots of people come into the churches that I've led, especially when they're really young, and people come in and you're so desperate for people to stay, right? You got your 20 people and you're like, would you just stay and come back next week, right? But you have people come in and they're like, yeah, I came from so-and-so church, and they did this. And you know what you do, sinfully so? I can't believe they did that. I found myself many times affirming everything. Oh, yeah, well, we would never do that, or I can't believe they did that, without knowing the whole story, without understanding everything, just affirming every bad thing about that horrific experience they had with that horrible leader, ignoring the warnings of Proverbs 18, which says there's always two sides to every story. It's not to say there aren't bad churches or bad leaders who make bad decisions, or that every story is full of half-truths, just to say there's always more to the story. And it's very humbling, and I say this with as much humility as I can muster in this broken flesh of mine. It is humbling to know that there are certainly those people who have left our church over the years telling stories about me or us. 
Titus is this um, letter to this young pastor who's charged with helping organize a young church plant or perhaps a number of church plants on this island. And the first thing that Paul tells Titus to do in order to get things going, to get things established, is to establish godly leadership. Namely, he says, appoint elders in every town. That's the first thing he tells them to do. That's noteworthy. Right? We only got three pastoral letters. And they, most of them read like church plant manuals. And the first thing he says is appoint leaders in every town. There's lots that needs to be done for the church to kind of be healthy and to grow, but it seems as if Paul is intimating that it's going to require a certain kind of leadership to do that. And so one of the marks of a good church are good leaders. And again, those are loaded terms. I understand that. And let's be... Let's just be honest for a second. It's really hard to trust leadership in today's culture. Really hard. Whether it's in the world of medicine or technology or business or politics or entertainment, it feels as if like, there's really, it's really difficult to find people you can trust to lead. And the church is no exception. You could very easily Google bad church leaders, bad church experience, fallen leaders, spiritual abuse. You'll get a litany of stuff. Some true, some partially true, some false. Experience with bad pastors, and again, our technology, our world makes it really... um, Easy to like learn about every bad experience that's happened anywhere, and anyone can start a blog and start blogging about their horrible experience and their horrible person that was a pat. I mean, all these things, right? It's just everywhere. And so, like, you get hit with that enough, it just kind of begins to permeate you as a person. And you, I think, and this is not you, but just generally speaking, we kind of come into situations usually assuming the worst about the leaders. That's kind of where we start. We assume the worst about the leaders and we assume the best about those who claim to have had bad experiences. That's kind of our default mode because of just what we've seen and what we've been exposed to. Maybe you're an exception. I don't know if I am. And because it seems that good leaders are so rare, whatever that means, and bad leaders are so plentiful, we have churches full of people who are really rarely satisfied with any leaders. Always questioning, right? That was a bumper sticker back in the set. Question authority as a default. One mistake by a leader and they're out. Because they've had that experience before and they'll never have it again. And again, it's not to say you should never leave a church because of bad leadership. In fact, you should at times. But then there are those who... um, don't trust any leadership at all, and they stay in the church, and they question every decision or are skeptical about every motivation a leader might have, and they just suck the life out of you. 
Now, if this is you, I apologize. I don't think it is you, but I didn't say your name. So if it is you, it's the Holy Spirit, not me. There are those people that, honestly, I get more emails and phone calls from the others. And I'm not talking about like questions from, from members who are just curious or, or, or concerned. I'm talking about the people that are always concerned, always skeptical, always asking, always criticizing, always complaining. You're like, I think I could just create a special inbox for this person who just sucks the life out of you because they just don't trust leadership, no matter who the leader is. This is what it comes down to. And so what happens is these kind of... And, this is still happening. These new kind of spiritual communities birth out of this aversion for leadership. And they kind of have a flat structure. They go, everyone's a leader. Everyone's going to be a leader. No one's really above or below. Like, we're just, everyone's the same because leadership impedes relationship, is what they'll say. And as I've said, Without doubt, without argument, there are sinful people who lead sinfully. But leaderless churches without structure or authority are not the answer. It's certainly not God's answer in the Bible. Horizontal leadership in a family or a church or really any kind of community of people where everyone fills the same role and has the exact same voice and holds the exact same authority would work except for this one Little itty-bitty problem. Sin. You see, when you have a group where everyone's, we're just the same, and everyone's equal, and no one has more authority, and we have the same voice, guess what wins? The loudest voice. And what if that loudest voice is sinful? What if the loudest voice is taking you like, when sin comes up in a group, you got to deal with it. Who has the right and authority to deal with it? Who are you to tell me what to do? Why can't we go this direction? Sin causes a lot of problems, and the Lord knew that. The, the Lord has always been about structure and authority and order. God is a God of order, Scripture tells us. It was part of His plan from the very beginning. And as we talk about good leaders, it's very tempting for us, which I will spend time on talking about just elders. Let's talk about elders and what elders, but like, you understand, we have elders in the church because it declares something about God. We have certain traditions and things we do because they proclaim something about God. As we open the Scripture, the first place we should go is like, what does this say about our Lord? What does this tell us about God? God has said, this is the way you're supposed to do things. Okay, I don't know if I like that, but what does that reveal about God? Of what's important to Him and why? Since creation, God has been a God of order. The perfect parent, right? God. The perfect parent. He set the first family rules, as, as you will, in the garden. He says, look, as long as you're under my roof, which is forever, this is what you're going to do. Adam, you're going to work hard, and you're going to build, and you're going to care for all I've given you, and Eve, you're going to help him. Pretty simple. Yes, I'm simplifying. But there were clearly roles and order in the beginning. And so there was respect for authority as part of creation. Then after men fell, and Israel was redeemed out of Egypt by God through Moses, God gave His law. I gave these Ten Commandments and certainly some other 
rules to go along with it, but the, the law, the Ten Commandments. And the first four commandments, generally speaking, directed or governed man's relationship with God, right? Worship Him alone and don't take His name in vain and those types of things. And then the second six kind of speak about governing the relationship between one another. And what's the first of those six, right? The fifth commandment. Exodus 20.12 Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord God is giving you. So when God gave the fifth commandment, right? Honor, honor your mother and father. He is reaffirming that kind of inherent authoritative structure that exists. And it's a command that obviously makes sense for children. It's a command that like as parents, we're like, honor your father and mother. Like, you know, honor your father and mother. But it's given to adults. Right? This law is communicated to adults. And that's because it's fundamental to all relationships. Is it a wonder that as you read Romans 1, and the back half of Romans 1 talks about the depravity of man and the fall of man and how his, his mind and his passions, the Lord just gave them over to him and what happened as a result? Is it any wonder as you read Romans 1, it's just kind of weird, and they're mentioning things like homosexuality and these things that we would, you know, in our flesh go, oh, those are big sins. God also lists prideful. He says, inventors of evil. <clears throat> That's pretty bad. Like, we're inventing new evil. And what's that right next to? Disobedient to parents. Can we kind of look at, oh, <clears throat> disobedient to parents. I mean, that's not murder, right? But he loops them all together because he says, this is broken. And rejecting my authority as represented in my law is part of the problem. See, inasmuch as children honor or dishonor their parents, as youth honor their teachers, as men and women honor the authority in their lives, God is honored or dishonored. It's about God. It's about what He has declared. Not about what we want or even what is easy for us. In truth, we all need parents. We all need those to feed us. We all need those to protect us and provide for us and give us wisdom and help in life even when we become parents. So when I say we need parents, I don't mean that in the strictest sense, like some kind of cultish way, like, I'm going to be your spiritual father now, and you will be my spiritual son. Or like, that's weird and freaky. I understand that. But in a sense, like, this is part of God's structure that He says, I've put authority in your lives to help you as to be loving and, and to glorify me. And we go, our culture, if nothing else, has a major problem with authority. We don't like authority. Why? Because I've seen it go bad. I've seen it be abusive. But God says, this is my way. And there's even a way to deal with bad leadership. But the solution is not to have no leadership. And that's where many communities have gone. The solution is to have the right kind of order and leadership which comes from biblically qualified leadership. Now, I say that and I also say this. Just because you have biblically qualified leadership, and I will say this many times, doesn't mean that biblically qualified leadership won't make mistakes. It is to say 
that when a mistake is made, the rest of the biblically qualified leadership ought to deal with it biblically, if that makes sense. Now, as we confess that men have at times failed to leave the church perfectly, we mustn't abandon the need that we have for biblical leadership. And I know like you go, yeah, but you're, you're, you're a pastor. Easy for you to say. Okay, I'll, I will say this again too. I am also under authority of the elders of this church. I am no less under the authority of the elders of the church than you are. So let's be sure and clear about that. Many pastors will say, oh, my elders can fire me. And then you read the bylaws and you're like, your elders can't ever fire you. Okay? I don't expect the elders to fire me, but they can. They can tell me what to preach. They can tell me what to apologize. They can tell me lots of things. In the same way that, that we, as a church, are called to submit to our elders and leaders, I am called to submit to our elders and leaders. I'm not outside of that. I just want to make that clear. Because depending upon your structure in your church, in a given church, that isn't always true. That isn't always true. The Bible clearly states though that pastors are to be protectors and providers and guides who exercise the authority of Jesus with the compassion of Jesus. Why would I say it that way? Well, Without authority or compassion, you have abuse or chaos. So you need both. Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. We say that, it sounds clever. It sounds kind of like, oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's neat. What that reminds us is that He is the great shepherd and we are under shepherds. That we are men who are authority in authority under authority. And that His Word is what or where the buck stops. The buck doesn't stop with Sam or Mark or Brian's one and two. It starts with or it stops with Jesus and his word. Okay. Now, and I will say this again, which I've already said. It's just so important for you to remember that your shepherds are sheep first. And sheep also. Okay. But the Bible does provide a very clear description of the kinds of sheep who are to be called to shepherd. A man is not called to eldership, not placed in eldership, appointed to eldership as Titus is called to do because he's a nice man. It's not even because he's a wise man or a successful man or an older man or a knowledgeable man or a gifted man. It's because he's a qualified man. And that's very different. So what's a qualified man? So I'm going to go through um, some larger categories because if you noticed in your bulletin, there is an insert in there. And if you didn't get one, I think there's some at the back table that lists, I believe, 20 qualifications for eldership. I didn't really want to preach a sermon on 20 different qualifications because you'd be here for three hours. I could do it, but I don't think that you would stay awake. So that indicates very specifically each quality that I'll reference some of them, and some of them are referenced in Titus, and some of them are referenced in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and some are referenced in 1 Peter 5. So they're all there for your reading, but I'm going to categorize it a little bit differently, perhaps a little bit larger.
We'll go into five categories. I think it's five. It'll be four. We'll see. First one. Men who are qualified, called to be pastors, are men who are worthy of imitation. Men who actually live the Gospel. Hebrews 13.7 says it this way. It says, remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the Word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. At the most simplest level, the elder's call is to nurture, first and foremost, his relationship with God. To maintain his household well and to teach and defend the truth so that he might manage the church or help manage the church, shepherd the people, and provide a model of Christian living for others to follow. That's the simplest description you can make. And as you look at the qualification of Scripture, you need to understand that these aren't um, traits to be developed. Even though we have elder candidacy and elder training, we're not spending our time training someone how to be self-controlled. Training someone to uh, be self-disciplined. Training someone to manage their household well. It's not a matter of whether they're trained. It's whether it's there or not. It, the process, if you will, or the um, candidacy kind of testing that we go through is not a development process as much as an identification one. And that takes time. People have asked, like, why does the eldership process take so long? Because you know how long it is to evaluate 20 different things and when all is said and done, get into a man's heart and see what his life is really like beyond what we see? It's hard. This is why Paul tells us in his letter to Timothy, don't be hasty in laying on the hands on men to install them to elders. Why? Because he says the sin of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So we can't just judge by what we see. We've got to spend time and dig. Does this man really live the Gospel? And it plays itself out in all these places. All of those attributes that you have listed on there is a way of applying and living the Gospel out in his own life. Like a man who loves his wife, that's simply like the first one is like a, a one-woman man, a, a man who, who loves his wife, is married to her faithfully. Okay. How does the gospel apply to that? What does Ephesians 5 tell us? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. I better know how Christ loved the church so I know how this man ought love his wife. It's a gospel issue. Are you living in a gospel-centered marriage? Are you sacrificing for your life, wife? Are you forgiving your wife? Are you serving your wife? That's not something that could be just answered on a survey. Right? Scale of 1 to 10. What's your marriage like? <laughs> it's a 9.5. Right? Some of the qualifications listed by Scripture certainly require interpretation, right? How, how do I know if a man's hospitable? So it's a little subjective. Or discipline. It takes time. 
but the elders of the local church, the plurality of elders, not one elder, not one pastor, not the lead dude or the senior dude or the executive dude. The collective wisdom of the pastors are the ones to affirm whether this man is qualified and whether this man is called. And so we have lively discussions about people at times and have over the years. But what it really comes down to it, elders in a church are really just faithful members in the church who are following Jesus and encouraging other people to follow them as they follow Jesus. This is why it, what Paul really meant in large part when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The opposite's true. Don't follow my example if I'm not following the example of Christ. So there's an example we said. It's not just, oh, you're showing it what it means to be a Christian. No, your elders are showing you what it means to live like Jesus. And they're to be held account by the Word of God as like the good old Thessalonians, you evaluate whether that's true. Our rule when it comes down to it, like how do I know if man's really living the Gospel? We can evaluate it. It's not on a chart objectively perfectly, but you can evaluate with certainly some objective things. But when it comes down to it, I personally ask myself this, do I want, if I were to die and go be with Jesus, which would be much better, but you know, I'm still here, do I want my wife following Him? Do I want my boys using Him as an example of godly manhood? Do I want my daughters using Him as a model of what a godly husband is? That's a great test for me. And a great test for anyone. So they must live the Gospel. These are men that follow Jesus. And you can see they're following Jesus. They talk about following Jesus, but actually act out what following Jesus looks like. Second thing, not just men who are worthy of imitation, men who live the Gospel, men who protect the flock, who guard the Gospel. Acts 20 is an amazing chapter in the Bible. It's where Paul is leaving this church he's loved. He's been there for a couple years in Ephesus. And he's like, I'm never going to see you again. I'm probably going to die. And they're crying. And he kind of tells them what's about to happen. And here's what he says to them in Acts 20, verse 28 and 30. He warns them. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders to care for the church which he has obtained with his own blood. That's important. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Okay? The leaders of a church, the elders of a church, the shepherds of a church are responsible to protect. And they're protecting something that's not theirs. This is not my church. This is not the elders' church. We don't own it. This is Jesus' church. We are under-shepherds of Jesus, managers of Jesus, stewards of Jesus. He purchased you with His blood. I didn't spill a drop for you. So, I am under authority, caring for a flock that is not mine. There's a greater shepherd who's watching how we do. And we know 
because of the world we live in, the truth is constantly under attack. But it's amazing what Paul warns him about. He doesn't say, hey, which he does in other letters, watch out for the world and the the weirdness and the crazy doctrines and philosophies that come. He says, you know what's going to happen? Wolves are going to arise from within. He warns them from what's going to happen in the church. And he says, you overseers, you elders, you pastors are responsible to kill the wolves. There's all kinds of kind of metaphors used in the Bible for the different people in the church. There's sheep, kind of know that one. If you look up sheep, how stinky and smelly and dumb they are, you're like, I'm a sheep? Really? Great. That's fantastic, right? There's goats. That's not, you don't want to be a goat. That's bad. There's wolves. Everyone knows that. There's another category that I, I've thought over the last couple of years called werewolves. And I mean this in all seriousness. There are those people that come in that actually don't know they're wolves. But because they have been bitten by bad leadership, usually, or a wolf in some way, they, it comes out of them. And they end up hurting people too. And I honestly don't think they're fully aware of it because they haven't dealt with the brokenness that is experienced. So I don't think they're necessarily a wolf in the traditional sense, but they become like one. And so there's all these things coming up, but wolves for sure. And what do wolves do? Wolves don't come and play and like, you know, do ring around the rosy with you. Wolves are there to eat you. And wolves don't attack the big and strong. Wolves attack the weak and the vulnerable. So what are the shepherds supposed to do? Protect the weak and the vulnerable. And I will say this, it is certainly primarily the elders and pastors' job to do that, but it is the body of Christ's job to do that for one another. In other words, men and women, because I know there's women that can shoot way better than me, the pastors aren't the only ones carrying guns. Figuratively speaking, okay? Get an email about that. Are you packing when you preach? Right? In other words, wolves are coming in. They're coming in with false truth. They're coming in with lies. They're coming in to to hurt and harm and to deceive. And what that tells us is that when I have up here guard the Gospel, doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. And it's interesting, it's not doctrine or relationship. It's doctrine foundational to relationship. Our doctrine informs the kinds of relationships that we actually have. I don't mean every detail of doctrine, but did you know that our doctrine, our understanding of the church, of who we are in Christ, and what that does for our relationships with one another actually dictates how we relate to one another? And so, as a rule, really silly rule, uh, the men who become pastors have to love their Bibles. They've got to be Bible thumpers. They must love their Bibles and know that without God's Word, they are weaponless to defend and attack against wolves from outside, but largely inside of the church. They also cannot be jerks. Now, why do I say that? Because I've had lots of jerks come in and you know, become leaders and then leave. And they leave because you tell them, stop being a jerk. What do I mean by that? Do you know the Bible 
And you guys went through 2 Timothy during the summer. It's very replete with warnings about um, correcting with gentleness. Anyway, you know where Bible Thumper came from, right? Oh, your doctrine's off a little bit? Whack! Right? That's not a shepherd. That's not a shepherd. It doesn't mean that the Word of God will not thump you every now and then, but I shouldn't be thumping you with the Word of God, if that makes sense. Correcting with gentleness, but correcting, protecting, and doing so. Third, men must just live the Gospel and not just guard the Gospel, but actually teach the Gospel. That's feeding the flock. This might be obvious, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 that when he came, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Bookend that with Acts 20 27, I believe, where Paul again is talking to the Ephesian elders as he's about to leave. And he says, look, I didn't shrink back from teaching you the whole counsel of God. Leaders not only care for the flock and protect the flock against false teaching and false doctrine, they actually feed the flock true doctrine. They lead the church away from the toilet water of the world to the clean water of Jesus Christ and the Gospel. See, on the cross... Jesus, we say this all the time, He revealed that we were more sinful than we'll ever admit, but more loved than we could possibly imagine. And by grace, through faith in His good work, He saves us despite all of our bad work. That's the Gospel. When we talk about feeding you, that should be the thing that is primarily fed. Like, Pastors and elders must be capable of teaching, but it's not just like the seven ways to live a better life. It's amazing. We come to faith in the gospel and we think, okay, now that I got the gospel figured out, I'm going to move on to more Christian things. The gospel is the Christian thing. And the implications of the gospel, not just the facts of the gospel, not just the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, not just the fact that He rose from the dead, but it's the fact of implications of what those facts mean. What does it mean that I've been forgiven? What does it mean that I've been adopted? What does it mean that I've been redeemed and transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? That's teaching the gospel. What does it mean to have gospel marriage? And, and gospel friendships. You don't have to attach a gospel hyphen to everything, but you get my meaning. And not only that, I find that, that men have to be able to teach without doubt, but they also have to be teachable because guess what? I don't have the gospel fully figured out. I don't know every implication of the gospel. And I glean from you as you glean from me. We sharpen one another. It's not just like, you are the sword and I'm the grinder sharpening you. We sharpen one another. And I've seen men come, honestly, who could teach. But they weren't teachable. They had everything figured out. They were uncomfortable with mystery. 
and there's a lot of mystery with God. There's a lot of things that, I'll, I'll be real honest, I don't know. But you know how dangerous it is to get a guy who thinks he knows everything? Who has a verse for everything? I, I, I guess I would like to be better and have more verses and, and more you know, in my arsenal, if you will, to teach. But I have to be honest that I'm still growing and learning. And even changing a little bit. There are certain things like the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's fully Godful. Okay, that's not going to change. But some of the applications of my theology have changed over the years. And I'm okay with that. But I still need to be able to teach and also to be teachable. The Gospel is where we are founded though, but the Gospel, I think it's Keller says this, it's not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A through Z of who God is, of who we are, and what He has done to bring us back. And so you need to understand that like your elders, they're not a couple things. They're not priests ready and waiting for you to confess all your sins to us. Now that happens, and that's good because we need to confess our sins one to another. But I don't have some special indulgence to forgive you your sin. It's not like special, you know, I went to my pastor and confessed, and that was way better than confessing to my brother. I'm sorry, I don't have that kind of magic. There's nothing special about it. We are to confess our sins. We are to live in our light. And, and it's good and right to confess your sin. I'll, I'll listen to your confession. But we're not priests in the traditional Catholic sense. Okay? We're also not prophets. What do I mean by that? I'm using that loosely, obviously. But we are not the ones to declare every decision that you have to make in your life. We aren't the ones that go, well, you want to know? Let me give you all the cultural decisions, whether you should get a tattoo, whether you should go to the school, like, Sorry, my job, our job as elders and pastors is to equip you to make decisions in accordance with the principles of Scripture. Not to make a decision for you. Okay? So, teach. we're teaching. But we're not going to teach like a list of, here are the bad words that you cannot say. Here are the bad things you cannot do. I'm going to say, no, I'm going to teach you the Gospel that says, your heart is bad and can make a bad thing out of a good thing. Okay? Any good thing can become an idol. It's been said that it's not that we like bad things, it's that we like good things too badly. So my job is to teach you principles. Our job is to teach you principles. So we're to teach the gospel and proclaim Jesus, not our preferences or opinions, Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. A couple more. This is, this is a good one. This is a good one. Oh, this one, fire you up. Okay, men who serve the flock. Who serve the flock. And I would say they apply the Gospel. So like, what, isn't, isn't teaching the Gospel and applying the Gospel the same thing? No. It's close to living the Gospel. You know you could have a guy, a pastor, an elder come up and just teach a great Gospel and then not actually live it out in real life. Check this out. This is one of my favorite passages because it's incredibly convicting. 
I know. That's why I don't read it that often. John 13. So John 13 is an amazing, the whole gospel of John's amazing, but John 13 is where Jesus was disciples in the night he is going to be betrayed and he is washing their feet. And after he's washed their feet, right? This is, this is the Lord. This is God in human flesh. This is Jesus Christ, creator of the universe. Washing the feet of his creation, including a guy who's going to betray him. But just sit on that for a while. Oh, I can't get that low. Really? He says, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Speaking to his 12 disciples, speaking to the guys who are going to lead his church. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I can tell you stuff all day. But he's calling them to serve the flock and not just tell them how to serve. An elder, the kind of guys that Titus is appointing, the kind of guys that we appoint in our churches need to understand that they are leaders who serve. Leading and loving like Jesus means serving in humility like Jesus. This is a service to people out of slavery to God, not slavery to people out of service to God. And there is a difference. We are leaders who serve, who sacrifice, who get dirty, who do the hard work, who do not lord their position because our Lord gave an example. What does this mean? I'm going to wash all your feet? Maybe. But I do know that it means your elders are not afraid of your dirty, stinky, smelly feet. And we are committed to helping you get clean. That's what I do know. All Christians are at one time or another called to be the tip of the spear into something difficult. All Christians are called at one time or another to be the first one into the trenches, if you will, on the front lines. But I would argue that elders in a church are required to do that. They are commanded to do that. Did you know Hebrews 13.7, which a lot of people don't like this verse, and I would argue a lot of bad leaders like it too much. Hebrews 13.7, I don't think I have it on the screen, so you have to look it up. But it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. That's the part they don't like. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, I'm not telling you what that means, but it means something. You tell me, you, you tell me everything. I'm not telling you anything. I'm saying, you've got to figure that out. We've got to figure that out. But I want you to look at the second half. Because I want you to understand the second half of this verse is where I sit often. And all of your elders sit often. What does it say? Yes, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
I hope you understand that your elders and your pastors and every elder and every pastor and every church will have to give an account to Christ for how they shepherd. I will have to give an account to Jesus for how I have shepherded, unlike you will have to give an account as a member for how you've memberished whatever. Right? It's different. In some sense, we'll have to give an account, but there's a verse for me, a verse for us, and that's weighty. That makes us sometimes slow to make decisions because we don't want to make the wrong one. That makes us long-suffering in trying to show grace because we know that it's what Jesus has done for us. We're going to give an account. So men who serve the flock are men who apply the Gospel as shepherds. Last thing. And this might seem obvious, but I found it's not. We need men who love Jesus more than the flock. Men who actually believe the Gospel. Like, did you know there's men who actually can live the Gospel or at least look like they're living the Gospel? They can live according to those 20 categories and go, okay, man, you're self-controlled, you're disciplined, you got any addictions, all these things, okay. Got men who serve the flock and, and do their best to know their doctrine. They can apply it all. And then, did you know that there are men preaching today from pulpits who actually don't believe the Gospel? that in the quietness of their own hearts, they actually don't understand who they are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ controls us. Men who are not controlled by the love of Christ. Because we have included this, that one has died for all, the Gospel, therefore all have died, and He died for all, but those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Trusting leaders has something to do with your relationship to them, but really has more to do with their relationship with God. Good leaders are those in submission to the Lordship of Jesus, devoted to the glory of God in all things, and that means that a good leader loves Jesus more than he loves those he leads. And what does that even look like? It looks like this. Dedication to the glory of God more than the approval of men. It means that sometimes elders have to make hard decisions that are unpopular, but they're biblical. It also means that they believe a gospel enough to confess their sins when they make mistakes. That's huge. If you really think I am sinless, you should leave. We have to have the confidence to not be fake. And it's not confidence that you're going to like me or that you're not going to leave. It's confidence that I know who I am in Christ. Did you know that Paul tells Timothy as he's telling him to be a preach and do these things and he says, and let them all see your progress. That's some permission for us to make some mistakes and for us to admit those mistakes and you not to go, oh, bad leader, see ya. I knew it. You faked us all out. Well, by virtue of my confession, I'm not faking anything. 
I'm showing you that I actually believe what Jesus was told by God that this is my son in whom I'm well pleased and he hadn't done a second of ministry. It's very difficult attempting for elders and pastors to find their identity and how well the church is doing and who likes them and who doesn't. And you need men. We need men who actually believe the Gospel. And I would say we need women who actually believe the Gospel. A man is not qualified who cannot admit his fears, who cannot confess his sin, who cannot, like Paul said, boast in his weaknesses. And if your idea of spiritual maturity is that, well, I just don't talk about my feelings because then we're talking about ourselves and not, not, God, not God, 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 you're not qualified. Get real. You want to talk about feelings? Why don't you just go open the Psalms and see what David said. Start in Psalm 55 and then go to Psalm 88. And most Psalms are like, oh, things are horrible. La, la, la. But praise God. At the end, you know what Psalm 88 is? Ends like this. Things are horrible. The end. We got to be able to be real. I, I, our elders have to be able to like be able to be honest about their own growth and honest about their own weaknesses. And if we can't be that, then we're not a family. We're not a family. Let me close with this. Who's actually called to lead? Because you read this and you're like, oh, this is just about elders. Well, let me tell you who's exactly called to be these kinds of leaders. There's three areas really quickly. Number one, everyone who's a Christian. Go through the list and tell me what you shouldn't be expected to do as a Christian. Oh, Christians shouldn't be hospitable. There's commands about that. Well, self-disciplined, self-controlled. I, I, I don't know about that. The truth is, Christians everywhere should aspire men or women to live, quote, qualified lives. You may not be called to the role of a pastor, but everyone is commanded, according to Paul, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In truth, elders are just good, healthy members whom God has asked to serve by leading. So everybody. In other words, you read that list, that's on you. Not just elders. Not just deacons. Second, parents. Parents. You are called to be these kinds of leaders. This is what I often call our first church. We are a family of families. right? A church of like, dare I say, many little churches. Parents, you are the pastors of your home. You are shepherding your children. If you guys ever read Babylon B, I think it's hilarious. Scarily so, because it's very accurate. And one article I saw recently was a guy who said, man, man with two kids searching for someone to disciple. No one says you have to have your own Bible study fellowship at home. I'm not saying that. But you're called to live godly, gospel-centered lives before your children. And at times that means teaching them truth. At times that means guarding them from the, 
the evil of the world. At times, that means just shepherding them and loving them. At times, that's admonishing them. At times, that's confessing your sin to them. Showing what it really means to believe the gospel. You don't need to have every answer. You just need to be living the gospel and guarding the gospel and endeavoring to be able to teach the gospel, applying the gospel to difficulties in your life. And when things get hard, you know your primary job to do is not to say, dun, 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 I am dad, I will save you, I am mom, don't worry. It's there's Jesus. That's your job. Guess what? It's my job too. You're welcome. Last one. There will be and are in the church men who are called to fill the role of pastor in our church and in other churches. And I will tell you right now, the benefits of position are, are not good parking spots. We don't have any around here. Not cushy office spaces, but this. Pain and suffering, weight of responsibility, struggle with criticism and self-worth, because with double honor, as the Bible calls it, often comes double dishonor. But isn't that what Jesus experienced? Now I'll tell you what's amazing. You get a front row seat to see the redemption of Jesus and what He's able to do. Elders really are just another part of the body. An important one. I've tried to figure out what body part exactly. Is it like the bottom? Like, you know, that's the elder. I think I've determined I think it's probably the neck. Because our primary job is to just lift up the head who is Jesus. That's our job. And insofar as we do that and follow Him, follow our example. A good church has biblically qualified leaders. There is no perfect pastor and elders. Newsflash are not perfect men. But we are to be examples of what it means to be a Christian even in our failure. We will fail sometimes in small ways and sometimes in big ways. But even then, and I would say the same to a brother and sister, a parent, you can still set an example in your failure of what you truly believe. Even when we fall, even when we screw up, do we go inward or outward? Does grace become bigger or smaller? So I pray that as you watch us, as you watch your elders, as you consider whether you're called to eldership and we consider that, know that we really want you to believe in the Gospel. I mean, really believe in the Gospel. Insofar as that even if you make a mistake, even if you screw up, you still declare the glories of grace in Jesus Christ and encourage others to follow as well. Let's pray.